Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 27th, 2020, and this is show number 803. This week, Bart Bouchatz is back with Programming by Stealth, episode 102, or I believe he calls them installments 102, where he gives us our first introduction to the tool Git. In our last programming by Stealth, we learned about the concept of version control and the evolution from the client-server version control to peer-to-peer version control and the creation and invention of Git. In this installment, we start learning the fundamental concepts of Git. We learn about the database, the working copy, and the index, and most importantly, we understand the differences because that's critical to effectively using Git. We also dig into the Git database and begin to learn the terminology inside it, which oddly uses English words, but those words might not mean what you think they mean. We gain an understanding of why Git uses SHA-1 hashes, but not for encryption. We get to, or we start to get into the power of Git as we learn about commits, staging, stashes, and tags. Now, we didn't get to play with Git yet, which was really frustrating. It's, it's just like we're so close to starting. But we do have a challenge, and that is to install Git. And if you want to earn the extra credit, choose and download one or more of the Git GUI clients. Now, this is probably a really good time to start jumping into programming by stealth because it's, it's sort of the new part of a new sec- segment that we're starting. And, uh, and I think that makes it a good time to start. You can find the show in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Programming by Stealth, or you can listen directly at podfeed.com. Or even better, I recommend listening and reading along with Bart's tutorial show notes at pbs.bartificer.net. When the first Apple Watch came out, I bought it, and I thought it was pretty cool. When the Series 3 came out, I bought that one too. The jump in speed was fantastic and well worth the money. When the Series 4 came out, the increase in screen size was a game changer, so I bought that one too. We got the ECG monitor with that update as well, and it was, I would say, the Series 4 was the biggest change I've seen in an Apple Watch to date. When the Series 5 came out, I bought that one too. The big wow feature was the always-on display. Sure, it had a compass and noise detection, but it was that always-on display that was the big attraction. And I could not have been more disappointed to find out that having the screen always on meant having a dead watch by 8 p.m. for me. I do two workouts a day, adding up to anywhere from one and a half to two hours. Evidently, Apple assumed people wouldn't work out with their Apple watches, or if they did work out, they'd get the 44mm watch instead of the 40mm watch if they wanted to have always on display. I gotta tell you, I really did feel like I lit 500 bucks on fire when I bought that Apple Watch Series 5. That battery problem was there from day one, and I even called Apple and asked for help, and they had no advice other than to disable always-on or to not enable a workout when I was working out, because that used a lot of battery. I thought, hey, why don't I just leave it on the charger all day? It'd probably have even better battery life if I did that. Periodically over the last year, I've tried again and again to wear my watch with always-on enabled, but 100% of the time, the watch died well before I was ready for bed. So what do you think I did when the Series 6 was available for pre-order? Of course I bought it. But this purchase was not a mistake. I'm delighted to say that the battery on the 40mm Apple Watch Series 6 is fantastic. Now, I've only got a couple of data points so far, but since I had a grand total of zero good data points on the Series 5, I'm declaring an early victory. 
I have left always on enabled on the Series 6 for the past week and while I went about my normal workout schedule. On Tuesday, I did 81 minutes of workouts and when I went to sleep, I had 30% battery left. On Wednesday, I did 132 minutes of exercise and when I went to bed, I still had 25% left on my battery. I've had left, I've had battery left to the point that I don't even check it anymore every single day since I got this watch. This makes me giddy with joy. Now, there's a reason for this great battery life. iFixit did a teardown of the Series 6 and discovered that the 40mm watch has an 8.5 increase in battery capacity up to 1.024 watts. Now, the 44mm got a bit of a bump too, but it's only an increase of 3.5%. Now, this isn't a technical explanation, but in the presentation they also said, because of its energy-efficient design, Series 6 has an even better always-on display. They went on to explain that it's one and a half times brighter in sunlight. Now, I really need to put on the Series 5 and 6 at the same time to see if the 5 will stay alive long enough for me to observe that difference. Now, what's amazing to me is that it's also powering an ultra-wideband antenna, an always-on altimeter, and it's taking blood oxygen levels periodically, and it's still lasting all day long. Now, the bigger battery is, of course, a big part of it, but the display on the Series 5 must have been pretty inefficient for it to be this much better. All right, all this technical stuff is really swell, but let's talk about the best part of my new Apple Watch Series 6. I bought it in red. I seriously think that over time, that's what's really going to make me happiest about this watch. My Series 5 looked exactly like my Series 4, and I never loved it iPhone XS looked nearly identical to my iPhone X, and I, I thought that purchase was a waste of good money too. Even my 16-inch MacBook Pro bored me quite quickly because I bought it in the same space gray of my 15-inch from three years earlier. I think color matters. When I rushed to buy the Apple Watch Series 6, I really wanted to buy it with the new Solo Loop, but more specifically with the braided Solo Loop. I configured my watch, but I could not get the buy button to light up. I exited and tried to buy on another device, and again, it wouldn't let me buy it. On my third try, I noticed that the only band configuration that was actually available for pre-order was the Project Red Sport Lube. Now, I'm not a fan of the Sport Lube myself because it doesn't dry quickly. This is a problem when I'm working out because I do work up a sweat, but I also like to keep my watch on when I take a shower. But to get my precious red watch right away, I gave in and I ordered it with the Red Sport Lube. Now, if you listened to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, the most recent one with Laura Gill, you heard her tell me that she went for the blue watch because she was afraid the red might be kind of chintzy looking. I think the red is simply gorgeous. Turns out Apple sent Lori a red watch, Apple Watch Series 6. Right after we talked, they sent it to her for review, and she said she thinks it's gorgeous too. I've heard people worrying about buying the product red Apple Watch because they were afraid it would clash with some of their existing watch bands. Now, this is a valid concern because guess what it clashes with? The red Sport Loop it ships with that I didn't want to buy in the first place. The Sport Loop is just barely on the orange side of red, and it does not look good at all with the deep red of the Apple Watch. For Christmas one year, Steve indulged me with a scarlet modern buckle. That's the leather one with a really cool clasp. And I thought, maybe that's a deep enough red to go with, with the uh, product red watch. Nope, that band is almost burgundy compared to the watch, so it doesn't look good either. 
I also have a regular product red fluoroelastomer band, and that one's pretty close to the color of the watch. It looks okay with it. Not amazing, but, you know, it's fine. I decided to put every single Apple-branded watch band I own on the Product Red Series 6 and take a photo to show you which ones look good and which ones don't. I created a carousel of photos to show off the different bands so you can see for yourself. I'm kind of proud of that carousel. I've never done one of those before. Anyway, I'm really glad I did this because I was rather surprised at what band looks the best with the Apple Watch, the Red Edition. It's the black and the red bands. Black with red is outstanding. I mean, it's just, it makes me think of my red Tesla. It's so cool looking. Now, this might not be what most women would like, but I think it's stunning, and so does Steve. It's hard to describe why the white with red looks so cool, but the white really stands out against the red, and I love that one too. Unsurprisingly, my lime green and canary yellow fluoroelastomer bands are positively garish with the red, so I'll probably wear those when I'm mixing and matching my garish colors of workout gear that I do just to annoy Steve. A couple of other colors work well with the red, like the dusty blue and the pride sports loop, but the black and the white are still my favorites. The bottom line is that if you have a Series 5, you definitely don't need a Series 6, but I found it to be a much bigger upgrade mostly for the battery and a lot for the colors than I thought it would be. I've also decided that I will always try to change colors when I spend a lot of money on Apple gear, so my brain is convinced it's different enough to justify the cost. I mentioned that Lori Gill and I have been chatting back and forth about the Series 6. She did a lot of extensive testing, and she wrote a very extensive article on iMore, link in the show notes, uh, about the Apple Watch Series 6. She explored in detail the health and well-being aspects of the device. I was completely floored to find out that she not only linked to my article, but she even quoted me in hers. She was looking for backup evidence that the Apple Watch Series 6 truly does have a much better battery life, especially for the 40mm watch. I was very excited and flattered that she did that. Lori Gill rocks. This is Marty Gentius, known to the chatroom castaways as Drunk Nick Nolte. I work as a faculty member at Kent State University, and with the pandemic, my job, like many, has moved to my home. Something you have to know about university faculty besides our teaching, much of our time is spent in meetings. Program meetings, department meetings, committee meetings, meetings with students, dissertation meetings, research planning meetings, promotion and tenure review meetings, professional association board meetings, lots of meetings. And dare I say it, almost all of those meetings are needed to work with students and keep universities going. As such, my job has switched to a series of online meetings. Some meetings I schedule, and many others are planned for me. Faculty are pretty independent thinkers. Although the university supports one platform for online meetings, we're using everything. Microsoft Teams, Zoom, WebEx, Google Hangouts, GoToMeeting, FaceTime, just to name a few. My problem is I get meeting notices in a variety of ways through emails, instant messaging, and some are put in my calendar through university calendar invites. So when it comes time for a meeting, I have to search through various sources to find a meeting link for that particular meeting. That can be pretty frustrating. I've gotten into the habit of copying meeting URLs into my Fantastical calendar 
but I still have to search for that link in Fantastical when it comes time for a meeting. A simple, free tool that I found and live by to organize my meeting links is Meter. It's spelled M-E-E-T-E-R, and sorry, if you were thinking M-E-A-T, you're wrong, and it has nothing to do with barbecue. Meter is available on macOS, Windows, Chrome platforms, and iOS. You can find Meter at trymeter.com. It's also available through the SetApp service. When you load Meter, it asks permission to access your calendar, search for meeting URLs, and add them to the Meter menu bar dropdown. You also have the option to add your contacts as speed dial selections. Once set up, Meter scans your calendars for URLs for meetings and then incorporates them into the menu bar dropdown. If you manually add appointments and meetings to your calendar, Meter adds them to your menu bar. Simple as that. When it's time for the meeting, click the drop-down menu and then click on the Join button for the appropriate meeting, and away you go. So, for me, Meter has solved my frantic search for online meeting links. I can find them all in one place at the top of my screen in my menu bar. Settings in the app give you options to launch Meter at login, see how many days ahead you want your listing, selecting your calendar accounts and specific calendars, and establishing your speed dial contacts. I enjoy many of the advanced pro features, particularly the countdown clock to my next meeting and showing a short meeting title, both in the menu bar. Notifications can be set ahead of each meeting. You can decide for each meeting app in the advanced settings if you want Meter to open the meeting in the native app or if you want it to open in a particular browser if a native app is not available. For example, I have it set to open my Zoom and Microsoft Team meetings in their native app, which is faster than opening in the browser. But for WebEx and Google Meet, I have Meter open them in Chrome. During COVID, the developers are giving everyone the option for Meter Pro features free of cost. The last Pro version upgrade cost $6.99, but it's free for now. Should I ever have to pay $6.99, I'd gladly do that to support this app. If your stay-in and shelter workday currently consists of online meeting after online meeting, try this gem of an app to get them in one click. Thanks, Marty. That was fantastic. I uh, I love your description, and it sounds really useful. I don't have a full schedule these days, but I thought it'd be fun to give it a try since it's free. So I tested Meter uh, on my Mac, and it did everything he said. It was fantastic. But I also tested it with VoiceOver. And with one exception, it actually worked very, very well. I was able to navigate the upcoming list of meetings and select the Zoom call button. Uh, and then I, when I selected it, it launched Zoom for me, just like it was supposed to. On the speed dial section, there are two options. One is to add a contact manually by typing in their FaceTime ID slash number and their name. And the second is to import someone from your contacts. With VoiceOver, I was able to import a contact from my contacts without any problems. I was not, however, able to add a contact manually. VoiceOver correctly read out that I had two text fields to type in, but I was unable to type in them when VoiceOver was enabled. 
I sent a note to the developers to ask them to fix it, and I explained exactly what was wrong, and they wrote back and said, yeah, we'll take a look at that and see if we can fix it. I expect they'll be able to do it. Luckily, of the features to have not working properly, I don't think this one seems like that big of a loss, because if someone is important enough to have in your speed dial, you probably already have them in your contacts, and Meter will do that for you, even with VoiceOver enabled. I don't know if you've noticed this, but many of us are no longer going about our normal daily routines, and one of those things we stop doing is commuting to work and back. While losing part of that daily grind is one of the few silver linings, it turns out that's when a lot of people used to listen to podcasts. Between people not listening to podcasts as much and not having nearly as much income, the impact on podcasters is actually significant. Bart gives so much of his time freely to the NoSillaCast and Security Bits and to the Programming by Stealth audience, along with his Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography podcasts. And, you know, his goal is just to break even financially. He's not trying to make a profit. But his Patreon fees have dropped because of these recent events. So if you're in a position to pledge to Bart for his work to support us, I'd really appreciate that. I even authorize you to shift money from my Patreon to his if that's all you can do. Head over to lets-talk.ie and push one of the big blue buttons there and show him that you appreciate the work he does for all of us. By the way, I should mention that he got called into emergency work efforts this weekend, so his regularly scheduled security bits will be next week instead of in this show. Last month, I reviewed the portable USB-C monitor from LaPau. It was a 15.6-inch, 16x9 aspect ratio display with a resolution of 1920 by 1080 Pat Dangler had loaned it to me to see if it would give me the extra screen real estate I need during the production of the live show and when, uh, maybe to use when doing the show away from home. While the display definitely did the job, the low resolution was something I wasn't wild about and it was also way bigger than what I needed or wanted. The diagonal dimension at 15.6 inches combined with the 16 by 9 aspect ratio gave it a huge footprint on my desk. The way the cover folds, or I should say unfolds to turn into a stand, took up even more space on my desk. I loved the idea of a temporary third display, and I loved the fact that it was really thin and light and I was able to throw it into my laptop bag for travel. But that fuzzy screen and the huge footprint was out of the question for me. I went on the hunt for a smaller portable display with higher resolution that was maybe around the size of a big iPad Pro. The good news is that there's a lot of players in this market. The bad news is there's a lot of players in this market. You know, normally you just go to the name brands you know and trust, but I'm not finding many name brands that I've actually heard of. There's a few from known brands, but they're super expensive. Like the recently announced Lenovo ThinkVision M14T mobile monitor, that's a 14-inch display with touch sensitivity and pen support, but it's expected to start at $449. I was kind of looking more in the sub-$200 range. I decided to narrow down my options on Amazon to two basic characteristics. I wanted small, so I chose around 13 inches, and I wanted high resolution. On a screen that small, 2K looks fantastic, so there was no need to go to 4K. This got me down to a couple of options, and to be honest, after an hour or so of reading specs on brightness, comparing reviews, and trying to figure out which ones were real, I realized the cost was under 200 bucks, so it probably didn't really matter which one I bought. For completeness and reasons you'll understand at the end of my review, I'll tell you about the ones I did not choose. 
I didn't find anything wrong with these models, and they all came with between four and five stars on Amazon. It was seriously hard to choose. The form factor I didn't choose was a 13.3-inch 2K display that used a foldable case as the stand, exactly like the lapau I borrowed from Pat. Two manufacturers have what appears to be an identical product, and they're both $160 on Amazon from Eladuino and Corkia. And there's links in the show notes if you decide to buy one of those. Now, there's a slightly different form factor from a company called Suzune. I told you, these are not name brands. Anyway, Suzune has this one on Amazon for $186. It's also 13.3 inches and 2K resolution. Again, nothing wrong with this model, no red flags in the 105 reviews, no missing features or ports. I simply had to make a decision and pick one. I chose the Yoyo. I love that name. I chose the Yoyo small portable USB-C monitor with a 12.5-inch IPS LCD monitor sporting 2560 by 1440 resolution for around 180 bucks on Amazon. The one feature it had that pushed it to the front was the case design and the footprint it had as a result. But I'll get to that in a moment. First, let's have some unboxing impressions. Maybe it's a false illusion, but I have a tendency to develop my initial perception of a product based on how it's packaged. Perhaps years of Apple unboxings have created this perception for me. The Yo-Yo monitor came boxed with many accessories in very well-protected, cut-to-fit foam packaging. Careful layers of thin, soft plastic covered the display, the layers of foam fit perfectly in the box, and a single-sheet instruction manual was gently laid on top. This is not exactly what I expected from what I thought was a cheap mass-market device. The Yo-Yo display is thicker towards the bottom where it has a significant bezel, and then it's super thin towards the top. Even at its thickest, it's only 5 sixteenths of an inch thick. That's 0.9 centimeters for you people in other parts of the country. So at 5 sixteenths inch thick, that's just a little bit thicker than an iPad Pro, and that's the thick part of the display but most of the display is extremely thin at one-eighth of an inch thick, which is thinner than an iPad mini. It only weighs a smidge more than a pound at 487 grams. That tiny little weight and size makes this a no-brainer to always carry with me when I'm away from home. The Yo-Yo display comes with a cover that protects the screen and the thinner part of the back. With the cover on, it's all one thickness. It's kind of hard to explain how this works, but the cover can also act as a stand. If you flip the cover over to expose the display, it turns into an easel-like stand at a fairly tall angle. I like the way this works better than on the big lapau display because there's nothing to the front of the display on my desk making a tiny footprint. That's the one thing the other displays like this didn't have. The cover used as a stand works just fine, but I like another method even better. Included in the box was a 3x3-inch plastic stand that can hold the display very securely at, large, at a large range of angles. This little stand weighs absolutely nothing and is easy to unfold and create the stand. Again, trivial to throw in this bag into the bag with this display. The Yo-Yo display comes with lots of cables for connectivity. For my use, which is to send a video and audio signal from my MacBook Pro to the display, the included USB-C to USB-C 3.1 cable is exactly what I needed. But if you'd prefer to use HDMI, the Yo-Yo comes with a full-sized HDMI cable. These portable displays are also marketed as a great way to add a screen to a gaming console like an Xbox. The Xbox won't power the display, so the Yo-Yo comes with a USB-A charger block and a USB-A to USB-C cable to provide that power. 
The display has one USB Type-C connector for the audio-video signal and a second one that is dedicated just to power the device. Having that extra power means even if you're using it with a laptop but still plug it into the wall, you're not draining your laptop battery while you're using this display connected to your laptop. But get this. This little display with the USB-C charger actually provides power delivery. According to the one-page manual, they say you can charge your laptop using the EOYO for pass-through power delivery. Now, the included charger block is only 5 watts, and in my testing, shockingly, it didn't charge my 16-inch MacBook Pro, which actually prefers something more in the order of 65 to 100 watts. I wondered what would happen if I tried using my 65-watt Eggtronic Gallium Nitride USB-C charger plugged into the EOYO and then USB-C to my MacBook Pro. I figured I had about a 30% chance of blowing the circuitry on that little display, but for science, I gave it a try anyway. It didn't blow up the display, but it also didn't work. The display started showing the EOYO name blinking on and off repeatedly, so I quickly unplugged it. Now, this was kind of a non-necessary experiment, because if I had my big girl charger, I'd just plug that into the MacBook Pro and then USB-C off to the display. Now, I suppose if you had a 12-inch MacBook Adorable, which only has one USB-C port, this might be the only way it could work. Now that I think about it, I've still got one of those. There's another experiment I could do. Well, in a more practical example, having the ability to power the display and take an HDMI signal means you can use the EOYO with something like a Nintendo Switch or a Raspberry Pi. Think about it. When you go on travel, you can bring a Nintendo Switch, you got a display, you can play games. It'd be awesome. If you've got an Android phone with USB-C and your phone supports this, you can use the EOYO as a big screen for your phone. I tried it with my Motorola G Motorola G7, but evidently that device doesn't support external displays. I'd like to test it with my Raspberry Pi, but for the life of me, I can't find it. Don't tell Ed, okay? He gave it to me. It's so tiny, I'm sure it's hiding in one of my many electronics drawers, but I simply can't find it. The Yo-Yo also sports a USB-A port. That seemed unnecessary. It means you can plug in a good old-fashioned USB-C, I'm sorry, USB-A mouse or keyboard. I hounded around in those same mysterious electronics drawers, still not finding the Raspberry Pi, and I found an old mouse, and sure enough, it worked perfectly with my Mac and the EOYO display. Now, enough about connectivity. How does the EOYO look? It looks really good. One reason is that the EOYO sports 1,000 nits of brightness. I like a super bright display, and even if I set it at 4 out of 10 on the brightness scale, it's still pretty great. When I first plugged it into my Mac, it automatically adjusted to Default for Display in System Preferences. That's 2560 by 1440 as promised. Well, it turns out on a 12.5 inch display, this is insane. I can technically read it, and it gets a lot of information on screen, but the text might be a tad bit small even for me. One of the scaled options is 1080p, which is 1920 by 1080 And you know what? That actually looks pretty good. It's still super sharp, but not microscopic text. The EOYO has two ways of controlling things like screen brightness and contrast. On the right side, there are three buttons. The middle button invokes an on-screen menu that actually has more controls than I think I should be allowed to play with. I mean, it's got HDR, overscan, color, contrast, and a bunch of things I don't even understand. When I first tried to mess with it, I could not figure out how to use these three buttons to navigate between the controls. So I even had Steve come in and see if he could figure it out, and he couldn't either. 
Occasionally, I could get the screen to flip upside down on one of the controls, but for the life of me, that was all I could do. Luckily, the EOYO comes with a remote control, which I thought was kind of weird, but with that, I was able to navigate the screen controls. The funny thing is, after I used the remote, I actually figured out the pattern of button pushes to move around the menus, and after that, I was able to use the physical buttons on the device. So I thought, oh, I just figured it out. But then later on, I went back to try it again using the buttons on the device, and it didn't work again. Later on, I went back, and I was able to control the screen again. Now, I can't confirm this, but I think the display controls are actually getting jammed up from time to time and simply won't let me navigate them properly. I should probably just stop playing with it next time I get it looking good and leave it alone. Well, I think I've covered everything about this lovely $180 display, except the only thing I don't like. The USB-C port for the video input is on the left side. I need the display to be on my left, so I had to find a longer USB-C cable for it to, read all the, to, to reach all the way across my desk to the other side of my keyboard and trackpad. If that's my main complaint, I'd say that's $180 well spent. Now, if I were the type to give stars in my reviews, I'd give the YoYo 12.5-inch 2K USB-C portable monitor 4.9 stars. But now you're going to be really mad at me. After I wrote all this up, I checked on Amazon and it was currently unavailable. I wrote to YoYo and I explained I was writing this review and I needed to know, was it temporarily out of stock or was it discontinued? And they said it's discontinued. So, you know what? I did all the work of writing this review, and I did all the work of figuring everything out about this. I was going to give it to you anyway. But I tell you why this is okay. Because everybody's needs are different. So, you probably don't want the exact display I purchased, but it gives you an idea of what you would want to buy, what's going to be important to you. And you've got the other options I mentioned up front to choose from in the 2K category of tiny displays. But I would like you to note that I made a big deal out of making sure this was a 2K display, and then I told you I dumbed it down to 1080p. Turns out there are a lot more options at 1080p in this tiny size, so maybe it doesn't have to be 2K. Maybe it was just 1080p in the big size of the, uh, of the lapel that made it look bad. Maybe if you got a small one, 1080p is fine. It's also possible 12 and a half inches is too small for you, so you might want to bump it up and look at the 13 and 14 inch portable displays. I gotta say, I'm delighted with this new display for me, and I plan on using it for all of my mobile work and for the live show to get just that little bit more screen real estate. Like I said up front, we do not have a security bits this week, so I am going to wind us up. I uh, also made a strategic decision that I'm saving something I've actually already written up because I can manipulate a bunch of stuff in my schedule that will allow me to go see my grandchildren next weekend if I do my, uh, my work ahead of time. So I am going to cut us off now. And uh, I'm sorry, Stephen Getz. It's just going to be a shorter show. There's nothing to be done about it. Anyway, don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, suggestions. Send me reviews like Marty did such a fantastic job of this week. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Now, you got to remember, everything starts good starts with podfeed.com, right? If you want to become a patron, you can go to podfeed.com slash patreon. But I'd rather you actually go over to lets-talk.ie and become a patron of Bart's first. If you uh, like uh, single-time donations, Bart has a PayPal donation. I also do have one at podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation, we talked a lot last week about getting together on Slack. You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Slack. Or if you still like Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook. We're there too. 
And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we had a rocking good time. They caught me in some mistakes. They were yelling at me. We had a good old time. Some making fun of me. Jill was in charge because uh, Sandy couldn't be here this week. Anyway, if you want to have the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.